Hello, I'm Alison Hilliard and welcome to The Word, the series where we invite our guests to talk about their lives through the lens of their favourite passages from the Bible. Each of their choices will be read by the actor David Suchet. Now, if all I was to tell you was that my guest today sits in the House of Lords, is superintendent of Wesley Chapel in central London, and for 17 years was a speaker on the BBC's Thought for the Day, you might be tempted to think he's a pillar of the establishment. But Leslie Griffith's early years were a world away from the media or the Palace of Westminster. He was born in 1942 and grew up in a poor district of Wales's Burryport. His parents divorced and money was tight. Sometimes he and his brother had to beg for food or find it on rubbish tips. And going to Sunday school was only a way of giving his mother an hour or two of peace and quiet. He says, the edge is where I come from, and it's from the edge that I've managed to see things. Well, that said, a place at grammar school led to Cardiff University, and at the age of 22, he became the youngest lecturer at the University of Wales. In 1973, while working in Haiti, he became an ordained Methodist minister. Leslie Griffiths, thank you for joining us on The Word. A pleasure. What do you mean when you say, the edge is where I come from? Well, if you could imagine this tiny town, 5,000 people in South Wales, it was divided sharply in two by the railway line that ran from London to Fishguard and eventually Ireland. South of that railway line, the industrial side of Burryport, with five mean streets, terraced houses, was the unfashionable side, and the north of the railway line was where the proper people lived. Now, I lived on the south of that, surrounded by factories, smelly, noisy engine repairers, the docks, a sewage farm, and uh, all my friends, when I went to school, uh, came from the other side. And so I was very conscious all the time of being half an outsider. In addition to that, I grew up in an English-speaking family home, uh, whereas many of my friends were from Welsh-speaking homes. As Welsh became increasingly a factor in people's lives culturally, so I felt on the edge of that too. So I grew up feeling a little bit kind of a square peg in a round hole, although I loved my childhood and I loved being in Burryport, don't get that bit wrong, but it always felt a little bit as if I wasn't quite plugged in to where everybody else was. But how difficult was it for you as a child growing up? Well, it was enormously difficult. I try not to do an Angela's Ashes approach to this. I don't want anybody's sympathy because I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, We had nothing. My mother worked in a factory. It was heavy manual work. Her health broke down. And uh, we lived in one room on a builder's yard with one window outside which uh, trucks dropped their loads of bricks twice a week. It was really desperately poor. Uh, We had nothing at all when her health broke down until the National Assistance Board, which had just been created. Uh, And so we then lived on benefits for the rest of my childhood. Uh, We did beg. We did scavenge on the local tips. I didn't wear underwear till I went to university. Desperately, desperately poor. But it was fantastically solid. Um, And the relationships between the three of us, my brother, myself, and my mother, were were extraordinarily rich. So I drew on deep reserves of capital, even though day-by-day living was, frankly, the edge. 
But your mother felt quite judged by it. There she was, a divorced woman with not much money, bringing up her, her young family. She felt that those who went to church in Wales, who would pass by your house, were really standing in judgment of her, didn't oh, she? She had her views of that all right. Les Bach, she'd say, I'm not going to that old chapel because, uh, well, you see, I do the football coupons. I love my bingo. A little bit of money if I got it on the horses, but only the big races, mind. And, of course, I'm divorced. And I smoke cigarettes. Well, those old preachers at the chapel, they'd have too much to preach about, so I'd rather not go. And that meant, of course, that your engagement at an early age with religion was a bit hit and miss. <laughs> it was more than hit and miss. My mother sent me to the Sunday school because um, she worked six days a week in a factory. On a Sunday, she had to put her feet up and smoke those cigarettes and do her crossword and have a nap if she wanted to and clean the little room we lived in. So that's why we went to Sunday school at all. There was only one chapel our side of the tracks, and it was an English Methodist chapel. I'm an accidental Methodist. Um, but the north side had all the posh people in the Welsh chapels, and we used to see people going from our little community across the railway tracks to the posh places, dressed up to the eyes, with their hats and their gloves, and those faces, I shall never forget those faces, etched in vinegar, so disapproving. Um, I mean, I didn't want religion that did that to people. So I formed my own antipathies, and ever since, incidentally, have kept them. I still hate religion that does that to people. Religion frees people up. It makes them blossom and flourish. That's what I want to see religion do to people, not turn them into frownies. Let's listen to your first passage then. It's the well-known Psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, what is it about that Psalm, Psalm 23, that makes it so special for you? I can never hear it without feeling quite tearful, to be quite honest. It works at a number of levels, but let me, since we're at the beginning of this conversation, take it right back to my beginnings. There I am in the Sunday school, not because I want to be, because I'm sent there. And here are these simple women, they were all women, my Sunday school teachers, with almost no education, working-class women coming Sunday after Sunday, rain or shine, to teach ruffians like me, because we were all ruffians on our side of the tracks. The pedagogical method was to sit us in a circle and to read from the authorized version, one verse at a time, and then we talk about that verse. And so I learned the 23rd Psalm, and it's become part of my inner ammunition against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune ever since. So it comes out of that simple, simple childhood experience and moves me because it links me with my beginnings. 
So as a Sam then, it very much returns you to your childhood and to memories of Sunday school, because that was a place too, perhaps in the midst of the harshness and the difficult times you were going through, that you were shown great kindness because it was teachers there who helped you go on to grammar school. Now, my brother failed the 11 plus and I passed the 11 plus. That was a cataclysmic event. Um, Nobody knew what it meant. I mean, I didn't even know I'd sat the exam till I was told that I'd passed it and was sent home for a half day to tell my mother about it. She was ill at the time. And and I remember telling her, and she was happy because she saw I was happy. But in the end, we stopped being happy because we didn't know what we were being happy about. I mean, it was just extraordinary. But I remember those working-class women at that church saying, Alwyn will not be able to cope with this, my mother. And so they decided to give a penny a week each to form a LES fund. And that clothed me, equipped me, um, made it possible for me to enjoy certain experiences that would cost money. I remember saying to myself, if what they believe, because I didn't believe it, if what they believe turns these really tough working class women into people who see a need to identify with a child like me, then there's something about this that I haven't yet discovered and must find out about. And that's an early example, isn't it, of a working out of your faith, something you had an example of very early on in your life? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, they just knew that whatever it was they said their prayers about, it wasn't enough just to finish uh, the deal by saying your amen. It had to, in some way, to be reflected in the life you lived. At least, I, I don't want to sort of over-provide them with uh, with a rationale for what they did. All I knew, knew is I was the beneficiary, and I really felt I had a debt to them. So that kept me in the Sunday school. So it was just a, a kind of a transaction on my part. And, and I, I learned the stories of Jesus in a way I'd never learned them otherwise. And this was to become a crucial part of my eventual submission to Christian faith, which happened in my university years. Well, let's move on to your second selection. And it's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, why have you chosen this verse as being central to your life? It spoke to me when I made the acquaintance of the New English Bible. Older listeners will remember that green, hard-backed New English Bible that revolutionized the whole understanding of the Bible. And the authorized version I've always enjoyed for its literary value, but the New English Bible It just broke new ground, and this was part of it. This drew my eye to it at once. I was at that time sort of on the edge, yet again, of deciding where my life was going. I'd come to Cardiff to study, and I thought, I have now paid my debts to the chapel. I've taught Sunday school for them. I'm now my own person. This is freedom. I somehow got attracted to a church in Cardiff, that itself is an extraordinary story. The trolley bus I was on broke down outside it, and I had 20 minutes just looking at the wretched place. I mean, for goodness sake, I thought I'd washed my hands of that. And then I was given a room in the hall of residence, top floor of an old mansion, and I looked straight out of it over the landscape, over the roofscape of, of Cardiff, and all the church spires were there, and there was the one that I'd sat outside on the trolley bus, standing up in the middle, saying, look at me. I found myself going there. Why did I do that? I don't know. But it was that that started to get my mind and my heart moving, and I knew that being a free agent isn't what life's all about. You have to choose your path. 
And that was part of it. But then the other part of it was in discussions with fellow students where we talked about Karl Marx, the latest literature, cultural things, what we'd done that day. I remember in a very high-level conversation about some philosopher or other introducing the name of Jesus. I said, well, in the New Testament, there's a story of Jesus that says X, Y, or Z, and I expected to be laughed at. I thought it was infantile. It was to do with my childhood. And lo and behold, these clever people took it seriously, took it in their stride. And it suddenly broke on me that this was not a childish thing at all. Then I had to decide about careers and so on, and, and, and this verse then came in. I was also reading English literature, and Dr. Faustus was one of my texts. He does a deal with the devil. He has all the money in the world, and at the end, midnight comes. Well, I didn't want my midnight to come, and for the devil to come claiming his reward from me. It's a rather stark verse, though, isn't it? And could be taken as being a judgmental verse. Do you think it's something that we're meant to take literally? I mean, have you, for example, ever thought that you were going to lose your life for God? I think I have lost my life for God, and I'm rather delighted about it. Um, I think that I decided to go for this life rather than another life. Um, and that's the way I saw it at the time. It was a choice between alternatives. And I submitted and asked for baptism and have uh, trodden the Christian path ever since. I didn't think of it as a monetary thing. I just thought of it as a truthful thing. Where do I really want to be in order that the gifts that God has endowed me with can have their full chance to flourish? Isn't there a sense, though, in which that verse says that salvation is only for the very few? Well, uh, there's certainly a, a way of interpreting it that could lead to that conclusion. I, I wouldn't go that way myself. I, I think that it, uh, such choices are available to every single person. I mean, again and again and again, it appears to people, here's the fork in the road, and here's the road less traveled, and here's the road most traveled, and it's incumbent upon us to make our choices, and then to lie on the beds that we've made, if I may mix my metaphors. But I think that it's far more democratic than the question that suggests, although in my case, it was very radical indeed, and I decided to say no to possible ways forward for my life and yes to another. Let's move on now to your final choice, and that's from the Epistle of Paul. It's from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 2. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Leslie Griffiths, why is that passage important to you? For a thousand reasons. Oh dear, where do you start? Well, first of all, I went to Haiti. The Methodist Church in the Caribbean in the Americas, of which Haiti was a part, had just become independent after being under the aegis of the British Methodist Church forever. And its motto was, the love of Christ compels us. I owe more to Caribbean Methodism than I can possibly say, and especially to Haitian people. So that's the very first. The second is that despite the fact that the 39 articles of the Church of England and many of the formularies of the Reformation talk about uh, Christ reconciling God to us, the Bible actually says that God was reconciling us through Christ to himself. This is the work of God. It's not for us to appease a God who's sulking and angry with us. God himself refuses to give up on us. And that's why in Christ he has reconciled us to himself and thereafter has enlisted us in the service of reconciliation. That's pretty important. You don't get the blessing and then sit on it and put it in the bank. It's got to be used. Otherwise, there's no point in it. So that's the second bit, the great theological truth of grace at the heart of the gospel. And then thirdly, there's this uh, whole business about anyone who is in Christ is a new creature, completely remade. And uh, those of us who over the years have really focused our lives on Christ know ever-renewing capacity of Christ to remake our inner being. I mean, it's just astonishing. So, And then finally, finally, there's this whole thing in the first verse of chapter 6 that says, you have received the grace of God, do not let it go in vain for nothing. You mentioned the impact that your time in Haiti and the church there had on you. In what way? I was sent there in 1970 because I spoke French. Uh, it's the official language of Haiti. I was asked to take responsibility for a circuit of 48 churches. The furthest was 24 hours away on a mule. I traveled by boat, by bicycle, on foot, by bus, all kinds of ways to find these churches. Uh, it was an extraordinary thing. And the most extraordinary thing was that nobody in any of them spoke French. So um, by then, I'd had 10 years consecutively in higher education. I was a clever boy, but the accumulation of learning and mixing in the sorts of circles I'd begun to mix in had uh, really made my cleverness an unpleasant thing. I wore it rather heavily. 
there's a touch of arrogance, which I suppose I haven't lost entirely now, but I'd created a persona for myself. This poor boy had a great persona behind which he could hide. And when I got to Haiti, I discovered that that persona was totally irrelevant. Not only that, but I became dependent on some of the poorest people on the face of the planet, what the anthropologist Franz Fanon calls les miséreux de la terre, the uh, the wretched of the earth. And these miserable people, in the pecuniary sense, taught me their language, taught me their survival skills, taught me their culture, welcomed me into their homes, received me, formed me, remade me, put me back in touch with the poor boy I had been, the real person I was. So, if you like, Haiti returned you to the edge. From the edge, it showed me what can be done. I mean, the way I put it is that the peasant people of Haiti did for me what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do for Humpty Dumpty. I was a healed person. I'd been given back my natural relationship with myself. So I shall never, ever repay my debt to the people of Haiti. It's as simple as that. I work hard for them now. So what now for Leslie Griffiths? Well, I seem to get busier as the years go by, to be quite honest. But, um, well, I, I work in education just up the road from where I live, chair of a large educational foundation. I, I have a place in public life. I'm a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral. But I hope none of that goes to my head. I hope that as I pass someone struggling on the street, I've still got a kindly word to say. I mean, the only thing that matters to me is that I might feel at the end of a day that I brought a smile to someone's face, or an arm of encouragement round their shoulders, or added a little value to the life I've lived that day. I don't set high targets for myself. They're small targets, but they seem to me to be the essence of the kind of world that I want to live in, the kind of world that I think is properly the kingdom of God. And what do you think the uh, young Leslie Griffiths from Burryport would have made of you today as you sit here? <laughs> oh, no, no, that's a teaser. Goodness me. Well, he could never have, ever. I mean, the young Leslie Griffiths couldn't see beyond tomorrow. He was running around an urchin into trouble. I mean, the policeman slapped me on the head because I'd stolen something. Uh, my brother and I on those rubbish tips, scavenging for whatever we could bring home. Uh, one year, thinking my mother would be pleased, begging for money from passers-by, and all she did was give us a hiding and tell us to go and give the money back. I mean, that Leslie Griffiths could hardly have seen any of this. And if he had been told this was going to happen, he simply wouldn't have believed it. Lord Leslie Griffiths, thank you for being our guest today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Alison. I'm Alison Hilliard, and you've been listening to The Word on Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.